0: Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel.
1: I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur.
0: I'm Jess Stokes Parish and you're listening to Simulcast.
1: Connecting the healthcare simulation community.
0: So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for the July episode of The Journal Club. How are you, Ben?
1: Uh, very good. Glad to be back after our international escapades.
0: I know, respectively. Mm. Uh, mine was at CSAM, just for Simulcast listeners. I've got some audio I'm putting together, so a little summary of the European SIM conference. Uh, yours was more pleasure. Is that right, Ben? That's right. I just fed elephants.
1: It was great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if I'm sure we could squeeze that into some relevance, but that might take the rest <laughs> of the podcast before we can work out.
1: <laughs> I'm writing the paper as we speak.
0: Yes, well, for Simulcast listeners, just one little important item of news, uh, Wednesday the 16th of no- November, put it in your diaries, particularly if you are in our part of the world in Australia. We're having a one-day seminar uh, just to reconnect the simulation community, and we've got some wonderful talks by many of our friends and colleagues both at Simulcast and at the Bond Translational Sim Collaborative, and so we'll have the link on the website for you. Plus, if you want uh, our newsletter, we'll be able to – there's a link in that as well. So it should be good, Ben.
1: Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, me too. Anyway, why don't you kick us off with this uh, first paper talking about imposter phenomenon?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So imposter phenomenon. Um might talk about the concept first. So I, I know for me, Vic, I remember the very first time I heard about imposter syndrome as a registrar really vividly. And it was during a feedback session with my mentor. And I was like, oh, I just feel like people are saying I'm doing a good job, but they're not realizing really how close I am to screwing up all the time. And it was such a freeing moment uh, for my mental event to, to sort of explain to me that this was actually a common phenomena and that there was an actual name for it. And I do find it fascinating because it seems intensely related in many ways to the sort of socio-evaluative stress that we experience in SIM and how hard it is for people to overcome that fear of being found out to the extent that we will actively often sabotage our own opportunities for growth to avoid that risk. Um, So to me, it's a real significant internal contributor to a low sense of psychological safety, and it seems to be one that we find really hard to overcome. So I was really interested to look at this paper because it explores not imposter syndrome in learners, but instead sort of looks through the other side of the glass and explores, well, what is the sort of level of imposter phenomena that people are experiencing as simulation educators? So this paper is entitled Imposter Phenomenon in Healthcare Simulation Educators. That's by Kirsty Freeman et al. and published recently in the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation. Uh, so this study basically investigated the prevalence of imposter phenomenon in simulation educators and then examined sort of the effect of work-related characteristics on imposter phenomena as well. So we've talked about the syndrome a little bit. It's essentially that kind of nagging feeling that you're skating by in your profession and that any minute your colleagues are going to work out that you're a total fraud. And it's a really very common uh, feeling to have. Uh, this article describes a model whereby people with imposter syndrome can become trapped in a cycle of getting a new responsibility, either over-preparing for that or procrastinating, and then achieving success via luck or preparation, and then attributing their success to people overestimating their worth rather than being earned. And the article argues that this can lead to burnout and workplace dissatisfaction. Any thoughts or comments so far, Vic?
0: Yeah, well, it's certainly something... I think I was aware of just through media and lay press. I had no idea there were things like these validated scales for measuring imposter phenomenon uh, that were highlighted here in the article. And and I guess I had also seen it as a little bit aligned with um, sort of gender issues, uh, which, again, there's some spoiler alerts, some interesting findings in this paper that might not uh, necessarily align with that. So for me it was just a little bit of a concept. I didn't realise it was a field of scholarship.
1: Yeah, I'll, uh, I might pause the gendered comment and discuss, come back to it a little bit later. But I remember reading something about that that I'll, I'll come back to. So um, in this article, uh, you mentioned that there are these validated tools. So the authors provide this overview of imposter syndrome and then they analyze an international survey. So the survey was voluntary, promoted on social media and through other networks, and they received responses from about 150 sim educators Uh, almost 80% of whom were female from nine countries. They were, you know, about 60 of those were aged between 40 and 55 years. um, And the largest proportion uh, were qualified as nurses or midwives. Um, And uh, almost all respondents were members of professional society. Uh, They had done between 21 and 100 hours of instructor training. 79 of them, so about half, were certified as sim educators. And in relation to professional identity, about 62% of them primarily identified as a simulation educator. Um, so the survey then used two scales that you mentioned, the Clance Imposter Phenomenon Scale and the Leary Imposterism Scale, which basically seemed to require Likert scale type responses to statements like, I'm afraid people important to me may find out I'm not as capable as they think I am. And so what did this survey find? Well, a few surprises. One was that imposterism was identified in almost 50% of simulation educators, their number was 46.6, which is higher than previously reported rates in clinicians. And perhaps more surprisingly, their findings were not impacted by gender, by time spent in simulation teaching each week, by years of experience, or by the number of people that um, sim educators have worked with. And I do wonder if this was a big surprise for the authors, because a couple of their comments about gender in particular, and the fact that previous studies have associated imposter syndrome more with female gender, suggests to me that this wasn't exactly what they were expecting to find. And I think that surprised me a little bit, because certainly having experienced it myself, but I was also um, chatting to my friend Yani a while back, who mentioned... Um, He had mentioned a a book that was published by a psychiatrist who'd done group therapy for about 10 years and he invites uh, all the participants in the group therapy to write an anonymous thing that they don't want anyone else in the group to know. And he collected those for about 10 years of uh, group therapy work. And in his book, he essentially outlines that at the end of it, the themes were actually remarkably similar. So all of us are sitting there all have carrying these secrets that we don't want anyone to know about and they're all very very similar and one of the most frequent was this sense that everybody else is doing well or succeeding and i am a fake or a fraud and uh people are so close to finding out but they're not so this is a really common human experience for all of us but certainly i think a lot of the dialogue on social media and in previous publications has been gendered did you have any thoughts on that
0: yeah, you sort of wonder if something is universal, whether it should be categorized as pathological. Uh, so I guess that's a one starting point. I will share something that maybe I should put in an envelope and not share with anyone, but now I feel a little bit worried that I don't have imposter syndrome because it seems like probably all the cool kids do. I worry that if you go looking for something, you find it. And of course, if you ask anyone, uh, do you feel completely confident and in charge of your job all the time? Then most of us go, "Uh, not exactly. Now, I have to trust that these are scales that have had much more rigorous uh, examination and testing than that. So I do not want to, uh, in any sense, diminish the rigor of this. But at the same time, I think there's still a little bit of a pub test about how you know, if you do ask people about something and I know that the burnout inventories and things like that are subject to the same critique, um, that doesn't mean there's not something here, but I'm still not entirely sure what to do with these numbers.
1: Yeah, I have hundred percent agree. And I think, you know, it is acknowledged that one limitation of this study is that it was, uh, you know, promoted as a imposter syndrome survey. Uh, I certainly completed it. I think from memory, if I, if I remember filling out the right survey, um, and and so I think if you have an interest in that particular thing, then you are more likely to fill out the survey. So it's not super surprising that there were, you know, close to 50% of people saying they experienced this because you would assume at least a percentage are motivated by their own experiences to fill it out. Um, I... Also would sort of love to see some follow up interviewing with the, with the participants in that is this just a persistent personality trait that some of us experience that, you know, their data certainly suggests this is a very sticky feeling to have that doesn't really go away with a lot. Um, is, or is there something about sim education that makes people feel more fraudulent? And I did just wonder about that as a hypothesis because. I do think sometimes in sim education specifically, we have fallen prey to sort of celebritizing and creating this kind of mystical power of the debriefer and putting people on a pedestal and giving them celebrity status as master debriefers. And I reckon when you put people up on a pedestal like that, when we're also putting people below that pedestal when we do that. And so I do wonder whether sometimes we have unintentionally generated some sense of inadequacy in uh, simulation communities by putting people up on a pedestal so much that other people constantly feel inadequate about their debriefing. So Mm. it was something that I wondered about.
0: It's somewhat ironic, isn't it, giving some of the espoused values of the simulation community about breaking down hierarchies uh yeah. that said that said i kind of wonder whether that's any more than i see in my clinical environment because i still see lots of pedestals in the hospital uh we so. do, yeah
1: that's true i mean we do it in everything don't we but it's certainly a phenomena a phenomena that, that we um we yeah. have done i think in yeah. our culture maybe that's just a human trait as well
0: yeah yeah well yeah. what are you going to do with this finding then
1: that is a good question and certainly uh the authors sort of uh I think that I'm completely speculating, but I got the feel that they were a little surprised by this finding and their basic take home was, well, we need to acknowledge that we cannot predict this by gender or by other factors and that we need to be <clears throat> fairly structured and comprehensive with trying to approach this as a community or as employers. Um, for me, I do tend more towards your statement where you mentioned if something's so common, is it really pathological? Um I do think there's power in talking about it and normalising it um, as opposed to potentially diagnosing it and pathologizing it. Uh, and, you know, it's certainly something I experienced early on that I don't experience now. And part of that is um, feeling much more comfortable that it's okay to just not know stuff and just, like, that's fine. I'm not perfect, mm. but that's okay. So it's yeah.
0: Yeah, I know. I agree. And, and, you know, they do say... Uh, bringing the conversation into the open is the first step and I think that is along the lines of your normalizing rather than diagnosing uh, so totally agreement that there because I think just as as is sometimes suggested with trainees with imposterism just telling them to be more confident is not going to cut it uh, so I was pleased the authors uh, did not go anywhere near that kind of uh, addressing it but Um, But, yes, as to what people do in their organisations or indeed their communities of practice, I'm not sure, but I have a feeling this isn't the last of Kirsty's interests in this. So we look forward to more from this author group.
1: Absolutely. All right, I'll hand over to you.
0: I'm Jess Stokes Parish and you're listening to Simulcast. All right. Well, we are now going to stick with the psychology uh, and shifting our focus now to our learners and talk about a paper by Christopher Stein titled Anxiety and Performance in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care Simulation Assessments. And this is from Simulation in Healthcare 2022. And the background to this uh, and both in the introduction to the article and I guess in the background to our thinking about it, is that we know these concepts of stress, emotion, learning and performance have pretty complex and nuanced interrelationships. And you'll recall the uh, paper that we looked at by Glenn Posner and Vicki LeBlanc, which really dived into this literature. And it's not just as simple as saying you get stressed, you perform not as well. These are really complex interrelationships. And uh, We know that learners in simulation are stressed for a variety of reasons, just as you said, that um, socio-evaluative stress of being watched. There is, of course, the inherent nature of whatever challenge it is that we're giving them, and that tends to be harder than your average day at work, I would say, in most of our clinical simulations. And in the case of this study, particularly if it actually is an assessment, and we know, although maybe you and I don't do heaps of simulation for assessment, lots of learning programs in health professions education do so this article goes about looking at one aspect of the relationship between stress and performance so what did they do they their um, study subjects were 58 pre-hospital emergency care students in johannesburg south africa and these students were drawn from all four years of their program Uh, and it's fair to say that simulation is used a lot in their course including for assessment uh, and these, they studied these students who were undertaking assessment scenarios from all four years, as I said, and they have a list of the scenarios there and you wouldn't find them surprising. Their trauma cases, some tox case, cases, uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, um, a severe gastro with dehydration. So the kind of typical clinical scenarios. And what they did was, Uh, In terms of the performance measure, so this was one of the variables of interest, they just basically scored their performance in these scenarios as per their standard process. They had a marking rubric, their usual assessors, obviously more senior paramedic um, educators were scoring them. So that was their performance score. Now, how did they measure anxiety in terms of looking at the relationship between the two? They use something that we have briefly discussed here, Ben, and that is the STAI, the State Trait Anxiety Index, or inventory rather. Uh, and if you've done any of these kind of studies, this one comes up a fair bit. And basically, it asks you 40 questions. About half of them are about how anxious you feel in the state, and about half of them are more to do with your baseline sort of trait anxiety. And they got the students to do this STAI um, questionnaire just before their simulation assessments and just after the simulation scenario. So they had anxiety measured that way, performance measured in the scenario, and then they did some complicated statistics that I will not try and reproduce here uh, to try and find a model that fit the relationship between these two things. And of course everyone imagines that as you get stressed, maybe your performance goes up a bit, but at some point it dives down. Now, drum roll, that is not what they found. What they say they found was that there was better performance at both the lower and higher ends of the anxiety scale. So the people who were the least stressed, did quite well and the people who were the most stressed did quite well and the people who were in the middle uh didn't do as well as those two groups so i'll just pause there ben what do you think
1: well it's very upsetting to have to consider throwing out the UX dodson curve i mean like <laughs> i know it's stood yeah. the
0: test of time since 1909 it's a
1: really <laughs> lovely thing to quote um i know so, and hats off to the students as well for signing up to be participants in a study during their assessment. I'm impressed they got that through <laughs> ethics as well. Um, but I do love that they're digging deeper into this.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's always tricky when you're trying to use a quantitative measure of something that is inherently subjective, but that's why psychologists have designed these scores.
1: Yeah, I have, now, I have kind of preferred like the – well preferred as a stupid term for this because i have no idea but sometimes how they've also <laughs> added like salivary cortisol or things that have yes yeah to <clears throat> be it's a better objective memor- it to be a bit more objective. objective about it as well yeah
0: yeah yeah uh, yeah i hope stuart marshall isn't listening to this because he has a few words to say particularly around heart rate but um i don't know what his views on salivary cortisol are as measures of stress but <laughs> I think what it's fair to say is the field is flush with different thoughts about how to measure these things. Now, as I said, I didn't do the statistical analysis, but I want to point out a point here. And that is when I actually looked at these data points. I thought, is that curve for real? And then I actually read in the discussion that the overall model fit was not significant. So in fact... Their curve may not even be exactly what they thought. So I think there is one important finding, though, and that is that we can say that there was not a clear signal that high levels of anxiety were associated with decreased performance. So I think it's actually the lack of that finding that's more interesting rather than saying, yes, definitely, you perform better at the higher and the lower. Um, And and I guess what it raises the question, what's the chicken or the egg, right? Um, Do you perform better because you're stressed or because you're less stressed and then you perform better. I mean, it's hard to – it's an association that they were seeking. They can't really prove a cause or effect with that. Uh And then one other comment that probably doesn't surprise anyone that does simulation for assessment is that students were much more anxious in the simulations than they were in dealing with these cases in the real world. Uh, A real patient nearly dying is not nearly as stressful as trying to save a plastic man when your assessors are looking at you. It is sad, but I suspect that is validating lived experience of people everywhere.
1: I, I'm not sure what the evolutionary advantage of this socio-evaluative stress thing is, but, uh, <laughs> It's powerful. I do, I do really like, however, like, um, I think your key point there is that kind of myth-busting value of the paper. Just going, this is not as clear and straightforward as we've been saying. And I, I did love that they both explicitly quote Vicky LeBlanc's work on stress and learning, but also I think it sort of adds to the messiness of that understanding and recognising this is actually really complicated stuff and it's not as uh, a simple inversion inversely proportional relationship as we would promote. And, and even if that gets us from pre-contemplation to contemplation in understanding stress, then I think that has value.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just more fuel to my thoughts about just trying to reduce anxiety or stress or inoculate against stress probably isn't the right target if we're trying to enhance performance i think there is more to it and i think some of these little frameworks that they talk about in here so there's some nice discussion of some of the topics and this idea about the threat appraisal and deciding if you've got it's not what you're exposed to it's then your cognitive process of deciding if you can handle it or not and i think that's probably work that we can do Uh, with teams and with individuals in sim all right well watch this space i'm sure this is not the last stress and performance article we shall see
1: on simulcast ben i certainly hope not Mm. um so speaking of individuals and teams in simulation, that leads us to our third article, uh, which is entitled Debriefing Strategies for Interprofessional Simulation, a qualitative study by Holmes and Mellonby, uh, published in Advances in Simulation in 2022. And so Vic, this to me, you know, interprofessional debriefing is one of those really interesting topics for me because most of us in the sim community espouse its benefits. But it also has, you know, it's full of a number of little hidden traps and risks that I don't think we've particularly named or nutted out particularly well before. And I still one of the best pieces of debriefing feedback I ever got was when you came to one of our education days and pointed out that while having a nurse and a doctor co debrief, it can send a collaborative signal when the doctor gives feedback to the doctors and the nurse gives feedback only to the nurses that in some way we are also signaling that those conversations of professional improvement can only happen in streams and actually reinforcing silos rather than breaking it down. And that was a real sort of um, eye-opening moment for me that I really appreciated. Um, I remember Jesse very on, on in simulcast, you know, highlighting the frequent finding uh, that what is advertised as interprofessional sim is often a medically focused learning experience with an earthy air to support that. And so this stuff really does need to be thought about more carefully. And so I was looking forward to reading this qualitative study where the authors basically ask, how do differing learner professions impact on delivery of post-simulation debriefing after team-based interprofessional simulation? What are the challenges and what strategies can be used to overcome them? And I'd have to say that last part of the question was one that I really am glad they added and, and I thought that drew out some interesting data points in this qualitative study. So an initial non-systematic lit review was done, which resulted in 20 relevant papers and four core themes being the debriefer, method of debriefing, the learner and psychological safety. And those themes then informed the format of a semi-structured qualitative interview. And the researchers interviewed 16 staff and extracted 10 key themes from that. And their discussion of their findings provides, you know, I'd have to say mostly some pretty unsurprising stuff if you've done a fair amount of interprofessional debriefing. But it's a really lovely synthesis of common issues in interprofessional debriefing. And perhaps the thing that I like the most is that of the debriefers interviewed, it depends was a very common answer, which I found a great actual acknowledgement that there often isn't any hard and fast rules with this stuff. And it's as much an art as it is a science It was really refreshing to find that the study participants used a wide variety of debriefing structures, from the Diamond debrief to Pearls, and even some groups that used initial learner self-debriefing for 5 to 10 minutes to diffuse and identify learning objectives for themselves for further facilitated discussion. There was general agreement that 2 to 4 debriefers was max, that co-debriefing was useful but sometimes more challenging, and it was appreciated that having a nurse-slash-doctor mix of debriefers Seemed to suit that interprofessional stance, but perhaps most interestingly some acknowledgement of the fact that some debriefs remained fairly medic centric. And that certainly stuck out for me because it's a common challenge, I find. And there was some nice teasing out of some of those issues here. So interestingly, one participant felt that actually the doctors went too easy on junior nurses, either because they were sort of overcompensating for their own internal sense of hierarchy or because they didn't have enough understanding of the nursing role to feel comfortable critiquing them. Similarly, the interviews emphasised the importance of credibility for the debriefer, but some people felt this meant clinical credibility on the topics, and other people felt that meant clinical credibility as a debriefer, i.e. having training as a facilitator. And interestingly, both in the lit review and in the study, the idea of credibility and what that means was really hard for everyone to define. You're nodding, Vic.
0: Ah, totally. And this was about interprofessional debriefing, whereas there's also a thread of interdisciplinary debriefing. And I would say one of the easiest places that I go and debrief as a doctor is up in ICU where I'm not a doctor. I'm a debriefer come to talk to doctors and nurses. And so I don't bring with me what ICU doctors know or have or their positioning. And I find that arguably probably easier to discuss with the whole team this is my impression i don't know what they would say i think it's very interesting
1: yeah um there's just some nice themes and comments that i think are worth reading if people are interested in this um when it came to the debriefers perception of the learners there was some nice acknowledgement that not every introvert needs to specifically be forced to say something Um, and also some thoughts that asking for their perspectives early can be useful So overall, I thought a really lovely write up of some of the challenges that come from interprofessional debriefing.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I will give one other shout out to Ed Mellonby. as you might know. On our travels, Eve Purdy and I visited the team at NHS Lothian in Edinburgh, where uh, Ed works, and he was one of our hosts. and He gave a great talk himself, and it was lovely to spend time with him. So, um, well done to him uh, as being so part many of the good
1: people team. at NHS Lothian. I know it's about? just
0: astounding. Yeah. Mm. Um, the other thing I thought about this paper, I thought, I'm surprised they didn't try and do two papers because really. Their literature review is very rigorous and systematic and comprehensive the way they present it, and that seemed to me one whole offering. And then this qualitative uh, review of debriefers' views seemed to be another whole thing. So I think it's quite a bonus uh, of an article in terms of it's packed full of good stuff, both from the literature and from their empiric work. Uh, My only little um, sort of heart-sink time was reading so many people had a psych safety spiel, I thought, oh no, please don't have a psych safety spiel. Please think about how it is uh, migrated into the sim- simulation, how you can support it. Uh, because I worry that it's one, it's a concept that we do relegate to a spiel. And uh, that may or may not actually have much of an influence on the psychological safety in a group. But I'm not pretending I am beyond that myself. I just know that probably that's not the right thing
1: on reflection. I, I do think, I, do, I think, um, in anything that you do, having some scripts can be useful that, that come out naturally and, and aren't forced and, and are genuine. But I, yeah, I agree that the just applying that blithely and going we have enacted the psych safety wonders it's not not the
0: right way but that was hardly the point of the paper so i Mm. should just stop perseverating (laughs) anyway well done to them thank you and we look forward to more Uh, and and i think i'm glad they didn't sort of start saying this is what you should do because i don't think we're at that point and that it depends uh like it or not is going to be there for a while yet and potentially forever All right, well, our last paper, Uh, quite a shift from grey zones to numbers and maths. Uh, This is about cost effectiveness, which is not something that many of us are very good at, but we wish we had more evidence about for our simulation work. So the title of this paper by Ajmi and colleagues, uh, most of whom are from Norway, including Stavanger University Hospital, uh, which is partner hospital with LADL, Uh, It's titled Cost Effectiveness of a Quality Improvement Project, Including Simulation-Based Learning, on Reducing Door-to-Needle Times in Stroke Thrombolysis. And this is from BMJ Quality and Safety from October 2021. Now, I'm going to give a little bit of background here because I think it's important. um, And not everybody works in emergency medicine like us, so um, I'm going to wind back to the clinical um, focus of this project. And that is acute stroke, which... Uh, can be treated by thrombolysis, by clot-busting drugs. And uh, although the evidence is variable, uh, there's certainly a suggestion that time matters. And the sooner you can get this clot-busting drug or other similar treatments um, to the patient, the better will be their outcome for their stroke, the less stability, the less death. So this group designed a simulation-based intervention that was meant to reduce the time to thrombolosis for stroke patients. And you can imagine things like running sims that go through the patient journey and trying to smooth out Um, all the things that might slow that down and this was a different paper in fact they published this uh, a couple of years ago and they managed to reduce this door to needle time from 27 to 13 minutes which is pretty impressive Um, and that was previously reported and again just as a bit of a sideline this group at Stavanger University Hospital were really front and center uh, at the recent CSAM conference doing some amazing work at the intersection of simulation and quality improvement and. Hege Erstal, who's one of the authors here, gave just a standout talk of the conference about the work they'd done on uh, neonatal resuscitation. So back to this uh, estimation. So as I said, they managed to reduce the door to needle time and then a few assumptions in this calculations, but they estimate that they averted 6.9 deaths as a result of reducing this time. And remember, deaths are not even the main thing probably in stroke. It's about reducing debility uh, over the longer term, but deaths is also one measure. So what was this study about? It was actually trying to measure the cost effectiveness of this intervention. Uh, They use some accepted frameworks, and this will not be familiar, I wouldn't have thought, to most of us in the sim community, but um, names like Levin and Zendijas, and if you're interested in the paper, they have some links to these methodologies for how you work it out, but the basics of it aren't that hard. You try and work out what it costs to do the simulation intervention, things like staff time, equipment, materials. Uh, And then you work out what the benefit is, uh, uh, what is the cost of a life saved um, through this reducing time. So you can calculate the cost per minute of reduction and the cost per death averted. Uh, And they worked it out in US dollars because I think that's what you do. Um, So there's a lot of assumptions in this kind of methodology, but to tell you what they worked out, um, the cost of the whole SIM project was about $45,000 US so they worked out that the cost per minute of time reduced was $29 and the cost per death averted was about $10,000.
1: Yeah, it, look, it, it made me a little bit jumpy <laughs> with this paper about that jump from association to causality mm-hmm. in the calculations. And I do appreciate that the authors actually name that and acknowledge it. Um, it does just sort of make me wonder, worry about us doing that in sim research too frequently because I could see it in some ways becoming quite a slippery slope that we take that association and then go right well that's what it costs and therefore this amount of dollars equals Uh, this amount of life saved. So it it was making me both a little bit jittery and then simultaneously quite full of admiration at a team trying to approach something that we keep saying we need to get better at doing, uh, and analyzing the impact of these costly interventions. So I think there's some great stuff in there. I just had a little (laughs) bit of hesitation.
0: Yeah, which I share. And I think we've all seen that. Simulation work that's focused on time-based targets will be where you can easily demonstrate outcomes. But we probably shouldn't just... Uh, focus on what we can measure because it can be measured Uh, whereas some of the things like let's say the groups in the emergency department pre-hospital and neurology now have much better relationships maybe their outcomes in seizure management are much better but they're not measured by this Uh, maybe because they put all this effort into stroke maybe their acute cardiac patients are doing worse because they put all their effort into the stroke patients. Uh, So I think that's one of the tricky things with any of these quality improvement um, dilemmas. I mean, they do have some discussion here and I guess – we could have some fireside chats about what a life is worth um and that's not a new conversation and nor is it new for health economists you know there are these concept of quality adjusted life years um, that is used commonly in um, cost effectiveness literature in healthcare. and they're saying if you have a stroke you might lose five and a half quality adjusted life years on average and so um their discussion sort of went into other examples of cost-effectiveness analysis, and uh, and they rightly point out that this cost-effectiveness might actually improve if, for instance, you do your simulation and it has a very long effect, like if you're still seeing the benefits six and seven years later after your $45,000 outlay, then obviously that's great. Um, most people need a little bit more sustaining than that. Uh, so I think there are other intangibles like capacity building for quality improvement. Um, as they said, discovering safety threats or other things that might have been part of it. So uh yeah, I like I like the idea. I I, I cannot quite keep up with the methodology, but I think someone needs to be really continuing to push this um data based work so that we can find where it is applicable.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, well, Ben, a lovely diverse four papers again nice to get back into the journal club uh i hope you've got a rest of july that's planned for doing something nice
1: yeah it's gonna be good not as nice as June, but uh (laughs) we can't always be traveling i know (laughs) well we could
0: say we were feeling cold but most people in the world have got no sympathy for us when we're shivering here at 15 degrees yeah
1: not going to play out well yeah. is it when no, i will well, just sit here in my Ugg boots and feel sorry for myself instead.
0: <laughs> all right well thank you again ben thank you to simulcast yeah. listeners don't forget the sim reconnect event uh details of which will be on our website and otherwise we will look forward to catching you up for the august journal club next month see you later see you thank you for listening to simulcast